Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope that you give us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Not only have you in him given us hope for salvation on the last day, but also because of him, you have granted to us the restoration, the cleansing, and sanctification we need in order to be useful to you in the work of your kingdom. You are great and merciful, full of pity, compassion, and kindness. And we are in awe of just how good you really are. That you would not only offer us opportunities to serve you every day, but you also give to us everything we need in order to be qualified to serve. Help us today to draw encouragement from the life of your servant, Peter. And if you would, right now, where you are in your heart and mind, pray for just a few things. First, that I would speak clearly and accurately and helpfully. Second, that your heart would be strengthened and your mind informed by God's Word. And lastly, that we would all be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus as we listen attentively to his word. Father, we love you and we trust you. Please increase our faith in you. and Increase our confidence in the way that you have chosen to work in us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we begin a sermon series on 2 Peter. We will, Lord willing, be in 2 Peter until about the end of July, so this should be fun. You're going to take a few breaks here and there, especially on Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday um, and a few other weeks, but there should be about 22 sermons in all on 2 Peter, which isn't that bad considering it took us over 30 to get through 1 Peter. But also, it's Celebration Sunday today. This is what we do most of the time, once a month, where we set aside a Sunday to prioritize rejoicing or celebration in all that God has done. So usually in the sermon, if it's possible, the emphasis is something geared towards encouragement or praise or thankfulness to the Lord. And if I can, I title the sermon beginning with the word rejoice and then give some reason for rejoicing. So even though the text is verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter, we're only really focusing on one exegetical observation, and that is this, that Jesus Christ uses people like Peter. We'll be asking how that works and what it looks like in our heart and what needs to happen if, in fact, we are sinners like Peter. When we began 1 Peter, I took a week to preach about the man Peter himself and highlighted high points and low points of his life, attempting to give a picture of the man himself. You might call it a biographical sermon. Um, Maybe some insights and encouragements for us. And There's a little bit of setup that needs to happen as we come to 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And and these two passages that we'll be looking at are passages that we didn't have a chance to look at 
um, about 15 months ago. So I want to take us to two episodes in Peter's life. And those are his denial in Matthew's account and his restoration in John's Gospel. Those two episodes, together with 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, form three critical data points for us as we look at the person, Peter. I'm calling them this. Unmitigated failure, divine restoration, and fruitful ministry. Unmitigated failure, divine restoration, and fruitful ministry. So let's begin with this unmitigated failure. This is after Jesus' betrayal by Judas and his arrest by the soldiers of the temple. And he's on trial, a trial that will eventually lead to his death, of course. We pick up the story in Matthew chapter 26, verses 69 through 75. So if you want to hold your place in Second Peter and turn over to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, Verses 69 through 75. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. Now keep in mind Jesus is on a trial just a few feet away. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl said to him, I saw him, and she said to the bystander, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he again denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. What do you think Peter felt and thought? What do you think that he might have expected what happened to him after this. It depends on what he remembered and knew about his Lord, Jesus. And I bet his heart and mind went back and forth in those horrible, painful, dreadful days until Jesus restored him. Can you imagine? He had heard Jesus say, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. But he had also heard Jesus say to Peter about his denial, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So where would his heart come to rest? Which would it be? What would the thoughts in your heart and mind be during those days? Would you have been so excited to see Jesus after his resurrection that you would just run off the boat fully clothed to swim to the shore even with this unmitigated failure standing between you and him. Understand, 
I think that posture, that attitude of eagerly going to Jesus is what made all the difference for him and why he was able to be restored. If he had recoiled and not wanted to see Jesus, then it would have ended very differently. And that's what makes all the difference for us. I think one of the reasons all four Gospel accounts, so the three synoptics and the Gospel of John, all record this story of the denial, the number one apostle denying the Master and Lord, is that so no one in the history of the church, and that means no one in this room, could believe or could think or ever say that God in Christ could not save or restore you. The big takeaway is this, as we finish looking at this first data point of unmitigated failure. Peter's failure was abject. It was total. It was disqualifying. It was horrid. It was gravely sinful. And it merited rejection on the last day. Maybe your failure is too. Maybe you have been given the grace to see that you're right there along with Peter in failure. Maybe for any number of us, there is that one instance so grave or that one sin pattern that you just can't shake. But Peter receives divine restoration. It's the same divine restoration that's available to you and to me. And we see this in John's Gospel, chapter 21, starting in verse 13, if you want to turn over there. John 21, verses 13 through 19. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after He was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. A few things to note about this divine restoration. So again, keep in mind the three data points. Abject, unmitigated failure, divine restoration, and fruitful ministry. 
So we're looking at this divine restoration. Number one, the Lord provides and initiates restoration. The Lord provides and initiates restoration. This is obvious from the text. Repentance is a gift, dear brothers and sisters. It is a miracle when it happens. This is why we cannot take our sins lightly. We do not want to be like Esau, who found no opportunity to repent, even though he sought it with tears. Jesus Himself initiates the restoration of Peter. What can Peter say? What grounds does Peter have to stand on to try and mend the relationship between him and the Lord? Be done with sin, brothers and sisters, and be like the tax collector pleading with the Lord for mercy. The Lord Jesus does not and will not negotiate. Lay down your rights that you think you have. Surrender. Yield everything to Him. Stop pretending like Jesus doesn't hold all the cards. He will ask the questions. His Word sets the terms and you don't get to decide how it goes from here. That's what happened with Peter and that's why he was able to be restored. Secondly, the thing we see about divine restoration, just understand why we're going through this, right? This this is what it takes. If we're like Peter, sinners too, who have sinned in perhaps very profound ways, utterly failing, these are the steps we need to go through in order to be restored. God uses sinners. God uses sinners like Peter and like you and me. But this is what needs to happen. Secondly, divine restoration is always, always accompanied by sorrow over sin. Not pontificating, not defending, not qualifying. If we were to record our instances of apologizing to other people, would it sound more like that or Godly sorrow. Peter does not try to weasel out of the sorrow-inducing situation. Jesus, are we talking about this now? No, he was grieved and he did not resist. He could have said, Let's not talk about this right now. I'm just so happy you are alive. Why ruin the joy of this awesome situation? We're here. We're together with the brothers. Why go down this road? One might even say that Peter was willing to be grieved over his sin. Are we? It's also apparent in the text that Jesus' line of questioning is what produces the godly sorrow. We don't generate it ourselves. We come to Him even if we lack the sorrow, the appropriate sorrow over sin that we need, and He works in us godly sorrow. But you have to be willing. 
Notice the care that Jesus took to bring him to this point. It's similar to the confrontation between Nathan and David in his situation. Being cut to the heart is sorrowful, and it needs to happen if you're going to be restored and be used by the Lord, especially to be restored and sent by Him to do His work. Number three, it's also painful and often embarrassing. Here, Jesus, in front of the other disciples, I mean, when I denied you, it wasn't these guys around. It was those people in the courtyard, the servant girls. Maybe I need to go talk to them, but uh, why here in front of my peers, my rivals? No, Jesus sets the terms. He asks the questions, and Jesus chooses the setting. And the point is, there's, there's no real benefit on, it, on its own for, to be pained or embarrassed, but suppose we are unwilling to do what's right because of how painful or embarrassing it might be. I think that shows that we're probably still defending ourselves at some level, and we haven't truly been humbled. The fourth thing about divine restoration is that it looks past wallowing is a good word for you, to service. It looks past any phase or any kind of wallowing in our sin to service. Jesus' purpose is not to make Peter miserable. Yes, godly sorrow is important and a necessary component, but we're not supposed to be miserable and despairing. His point was to scrape Peter off the floor of failure and set him on the highway to helping others. He says, feed my sheep. The Lord Jesus cares too much about the well-being of His people than to leave you wallowing in self-defeat. And some of us may have left ourselves there for too long. Get up and fight. This is war. We don't have time to mess around, brothers and sisters. Feed the sheep. There are sheep that need to be fed. There are burdens to bear. There is stirring up to love and to good works that needs to happen. There's a lot of good works to do that He's prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Of course, there may need to be a season of being restored and being healed depending on the severity and the the pervasiveness of your sin. It might be a long season, but please, brother and sister, do not wallow. Don't stay there. The fifth thing we see about divine restoration is that it looks past personal gain to sacrifice. Goodness gracious, there are so many benefits of being restored that you receive, that I receive internally. We receive divine restoration, peace within, confidence versus the world, assurance of pardon, reconciled relationships even, often. Joy in our salvation restored. That's what David prays for, right? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. When when he's assured of receiving divine restoration, he can be happy again in the Lord. But that's not what the point of this text is. Notice that Jesus doesn't talk about any of those things. Those can safely be assumed. Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die and how he's going to glorify God in it. This is not punishment. Some may take it that way. No, the point is that if we're forgiven, 
bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus, restored from our failure by the blood of Jesus, then He calls the shots. And He tells you what you get to do or don't do with your life. One of the ways that we try to raise our children is kind of a refrain around our house to help them understand God's power and His might and His control. Jesus is in charge of everything. And He's in charge of how you plan to live the rest of your life. Especially if you receive restoration after unmitigated failure. He doesn't liberate you so you can just go do whatever you want in your newfound freedom. He tells you what to do. He tells you how you're going to glorify Him. He's your Master. He's your Savior, Redeemer. Live like it. Remember the forgiven prostitute in Luke chapter 7? And what Jesus says about her? Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. When the Lord restores you, and you know that your sin is great, you are willing to do whatever He asks you to do. with love and joy in your heart. And many are not that interested in serving the Lord at whatever cost because I think this is one of the root problems of a lack of service is that we don't really believe that the cost, the price He paid to restore us is really that great. At least, not compared to those other people. So that's the second data point. We have unmitigated failure, divine restoration, and what that looks like. And now we look at fruitful ministry. What kind of life does this unmitigated failure and then receiving divine restoration, what does that lead to? What does that look like? Of course you could go to Acts and just read what Peter did, or a lot of it, but we'll come now finally to Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Second Peter 1, 1 and 2. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. What a great passage. There's so much low-hanging fruit for a preacher to riff on, and I'm looking forward to a few other sermons from these verses. But for now, again, our, our question is narrow. It's one exegetical observation. Jesus Christ uses people like Simon Peter. And what does that look like after having failed miserably and having received divine restoration? What, what attributes or qualities do we see in the heart of a person who's gone through this experience? What does our heart need to look like in order to be useful to the Lord having received His restoration? The first of... I'll, I'll give you six. I, we can see at least six. There are probably more, but from this passage I'll give you six. Number one, humility before the Lord. 
Peter, I don't think intentionally, but very clearly shows his humility in yielding to the name that Jesus gives him and also calling himself a servant and apostle of the Lord Jesus. He's essentially saying what I said earlier. Jesus is the boss. He calls the shots. Everything I'm about, everything that I'm going to do, he sets the terms. I'm at his disposal. He has humility before the Lord. If you're a sinner and want to be used by the Lord, even sent by Him, which is what apostle means, sent ones, sent by Him to do His work, then what's more important than any skill, more important than any experience, more important than any degree, more important than any kind of knowledge or language, is humility. And particularly, humility that works itself out in obedience. I wonder if we believe this. They don't teach any classes on humility at seminary. At least not any I'm familiar with. And the problem is that you can't really learn humility from a class or a book. Those could or would help, maybe. But you really only have two options. You can either humble yourself or you have to be humbled. There's not a whole lot of help that learning and more information can do because knowledge pops up. We know this. Most of us don't humble ourselves. And so we wait around until we encounter some experience that humbles us. And when we encounter humbling experiences, most of us, and I'm including myself here, respond in less than ideal ways. And don't allow ourselves to be humble, but rather we increase in pride sometimes through those humbling experiences. Because we pontificate and justify and redefine things to show how we were really in the right the whole time. Or it's understandable given the circumstances. In some ways, I think this is probably why Jesus allowed Peter to be sifted like wheat by the devil We know we need humility. Hopefully you wouldn't argue against that. But you usually find true humility in people who are not that impressed at all with themselves. Their experiences or their accomplishments. On the other hand, so we need humility before the Lord. That's number one. This is what abject, unmitigated failure with divine restoration produces. Humility towards the Lord, before the Lord. But also, on the other hand, we see this non-self-deprecation. It's a mouthful. But Peter is not saying that he's just a nobody by using the title slave or servant. Being a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ is no small thing. If you are a sinner and want to serve the Lord and be sent by Him to do His work, good news, He will use you. But just like Peter, you need not make your sin and unworthiness a central point. Christ is the point. The Lord is pleased to be served by those who know that they're unworthy, but who don't make a big deal about it. Why? Because, this is, this is how complex our, our pride and our, our affliction is. Because there is a way, and it's much easier than you might think, 
to make yourself the point and draw attention to yourself even as you talk yourself down or as you focus on yourself with self-deprecating thoughts. It's all about you, again, which isn't humble. You are what Christ wills you to be. Or to quote Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. There is this unhealthy, self-deprecating attitude and it sounds like this. Look, we're all unworthy, but look at just how unworthy I am. Let me tell you, I'm so unworthy to be a servant of Jesus. And then there's this arrogance that creeps in. We come to esteem ourselves as those who have a better understanding of our unworthiness. To paraphrase and repurpose George Orwell... All Christians are in need of grace, but some of us are better at needing grace. Or to paraphrase and repurpose Socrates, none of us are worthy of anything, but I guess I'm better than you guys because I truly know I'm not worthy of anything. Don't be like that. Know that you're a sinner saved by grace and know that you are in Christ and let it end there. Let your thoughts about yourself just dissipate. Don't draw attention to yourself. Your sin or your lack of qualifications are not the main point. So don't talk about them like they are. And here's, here's the danger, honestly. That there's this ugly underbelly of self-deprecation or self-loathing. When we're that way and focus so much on our failures in a self-focused or self-hating way or any mixture of those, I think it's actually promoted by legalism. rather than anything having to do with grace. And the way you can know is how you judge and critique and lack tenderness towards others. You may be the harshest critic of yourself, but that probably means you're far too critical and harsh in your criticisms of others. And I think that's evidence of a legalism-motivated self-deprecation, not humility. But when we have humility and happiness in being forgiven, we can pleasantly move on and make the Lord the main point and not ourselves and not be exacting towards others. Instead, as we know that we are entirely dependent on the restoration and commissioning of the Lord, we have, number three, humility towards others. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Lord willing, in two weeks, we'll have a whole message on that one statement because there's just so many things, so many thoughts and insights from that. But for now, just consider how this statement shows us clearly the mindset of a restored sinner. He's not putting himself above others at all. He says of these people, many of whom he may have not met, you have a faith of equal standing with mine. Even though he's the great apostle Peter. Yet, this is, this is the point, I think, his unmitigated failure and how he needed divine restoration, might we say those two things dragged an anchor on his pride for the rest of his life. Peter, the leader of the apostles, with empire-wide influence. 
and renown considers all his recipients to have an equal standing in the faith with him. We know it's, it's just logical. It's, it's easy when you're thinking clearly and not rebelling in sin to, to uh, avoid pride before the Lord. Right? Who, what, what kind of folly does it take to, to build yourself up or promote yourself in God's presence? But what about how we think of others? And what about that Christian who has yet to mature as much as you think they ought to have? What about that brother or sister in Christ who has quirky theology or reads less than ideal books? What about that brother or sister in Christ who does not dress or talk like we think they should? What about that brother or sister in Christ who struggles with a sin that we've never struggled with? What about that Christian who can't see or appreciate our strengths or what we have to offer? What about that Christian who does not work as hard as we think they ought to towards their sanctification? And all those might be accurate concerns in an objective sense. But the moment, that very instant that you begin to look down on them and consider yourself in some sense better than them, doing more with the grace that you've been given... pride. It's not humility. If you're a sinner and wish to still be used by the Lord, even sent to do His work for His purposes, then you must consider yourself in no small part because of your sin as no better than anyone else. And any maturity you have, you must not consider as owing to anything in yourself. When we understand that even our willingness to obey, even our desire to obey is a gift from God, a work of the Spirit, then how can we possibly look down on other people and remain consistent with our own theology? It doesn't work. How lowly ought our posture to be and how highly ought we to esteem others? when we know that we needed restoration from abject failure by the Lord. When we know this, when we walk in an awareness of our failure and the restoration of the Lord, we also serve without a Messiah complex or no Messiah complex. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ explicitly calling Jesus God as an aside. Peter understands that the righteousness of God is the only cause of their faith. Their faith, by which they have equal standing with Peter, is based on, it is in accord with, the righteousness of God alone. Again, so much to say here. But for now, let's just focus on this one idea the people to whom Peter is writing indeed have benefited from his ministry. Consider those sermons that he preached in the early days. Thousands of people being converted. And after the murder of Stephen, all those people go back and scatter back throughout the Roman Empire, spreading the Gospel as they go. 
the people who Peter is writing to either were converted under his preaching, heard the witness of those who were, or knew someone who was. There probably wasn't one person in the early days of Christianity who wasn't directly a beneficiary of the ministry of Peter. But he essentially takes no credit at all. You have a phase of equal standing by the righteousness of God. It's a silly illustration, but it works fine. You ever tried to open a jar, like a jar of pickles or something like that, and you try and you try and you try and you can't get it, and you hand it to your maybe more muscular friend, here you go, or like worst of all, if it's your wife that picks it up, guys, and she gets it in the first try, and you say something like, well, I loosened it up for you. We want credit. We want credit for what we've done in our serving. Look closely at what Peter says. You've gained faith of equal standing by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can be honest in your heart right now. I'm not asking you to say anything out loud. But when we don't get credit for the work we do, or people are more helped or blessed by others who didn't try as hard, doesn't that not sting a little bit when we feel ill-used or underappreciated? That shows a bit, if not more, of a Messiah complex. We think we bring something to the table. and We want credit for it. Will we be the ones to say with full belief and joy, we were but unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Just happy to be here. The Lord deserves all the praise, all the glory, all the credit. Or will we think deep down at some level that we deserve a little bit more recognition than that? We want credit when we think we contribute. That it is something from us that we didn't receive from the Lord directly. We think that people need us and depend on us for the things that they can really only get from the Lord. Indeed, I think the true animating principle of all gospel ministry is this. Jesus is the one you need. Jesus is the one you need. You don't need one more sermon, one more book, one more session, one more conversation, whatever it is. Those might help, but Jesus is the one you need. And any help I'm going to offer you is to help clear the weeds so that you can see that Jesus is the one you need. Peter understood that because he had unmitigatedly failed and needed Christ's mercy and grace to restore him at all and escape condemnation. If you have never come to view yourself as being guilty of enough failure to be unusable like Peter, then you also won't think that Jesus has given to you undeserved and scandalous divine restoration. Instead, we can think things like this. I did things right. I kept myself from this or that. Or we think the Lord's grace was effective in my case. And we 
think with this sheer diabolical pride that it is because of us or our will at some level Deep down, that is the Messiah complex. In essence, you're saying and thinking that the Lord is lucky to have you on His team. Of course, we know it's all of grace, but man, the Lord must be getting a good return on His investment in my case. Just reject that. If you see your sin rightly and you know that Jesus paid just as much impossible to repay blood to restore you in your case, to make you stand in His presence as He did for Peter, then we also serve with number five, without a right way complex. This is a little bit more subtle, but you see it here. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We'll talk about his dependency in the prayer itself in a little bit, but what he's praying for, he's writing this letter, he's going to instruct the people and his hearers, but he knows that if any of it's going to take root or have a good effect, it will be from the Lord. You might safely avoid the Messiah complex, but there's an idea out there, it's kind of hard to put into words, that if you do the right things, if you preach the good doctrine, if you teach properly, if you structure your church the right way, if you say the right things, if you check all the boxes, then it will work out for you and you'll be successful in ministry. Whole groups of seminaries sell their degrees to young men and women on that very premise. Ministry is a career path that can be planned and predictable. And it's more than just a problem in ministry. Teach your kids the right stuff. We misapply Proverbs all the time. And most of the time, it'll go fine for you. Have the right life goals and principles and financial commitments. And it will pretty much always go right for you. Just do it my way. What's wrong with your people? Pull yourself together like me. It's not that hard. And what that shows, what that shows is in our hearts is this complex where we think that we still did it right and that's why it went well for us. And if people would just be like us, it'd be okay for them as well. When some ministry venture or church fails or parenting situation fails or relationship fails or marriage goes off the rails, we try to explain why it failed. We become fault finders and say things like, well, they didn't do this or that enough. They didn't appoint this kind of leader fast enough. They didn't have enough of this kind of people or that kind of people. They didn't put enough safeguards in. They were too strict. They were too lenient. They didn't have the right kind of doctrine. And on and on we can go. We know that we're not the Messiah, but maybe if they had done it my way, they'd be all right. And it wouldn't have failed. But no, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, no matter how biblical or right your plans are, labor in vain. You don't know what people are dealing with. You're not God. You don't know what He has ordained. Put your hand over your mouth. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And the really, really bad version of this is trying to build your ministry philosophy or your life plans based on what works 
Or even worse, you can think that because what I'm doing or they're doing is working, then it's right. Peter knows in this prayer, his posture is, unless the Lord works these things into you, I can write the best letter there is, and it's not going to matter. Consider the ministry of the, the prophets in the Old Testament. The only truly successful prophet in the whole Old Testament was Jonah, and he wasn't even happy about it. For the rest of them, they, told, they did what they were told to do, and for the most part, it went really, really poorly for them, and the people didn't listen. And it's not just an Old Testament phenomenon. Consider the ministry of Paul. We won't dig too deeply in on this, but near the end of his life, his whole team, for the most part, has abandoned him. Many of the churches that he started are in a real big mess. And many of those churches came to a bad end. Many of the people who were his disciples, many of those that he personally led to the Lord, had either fallen away from the faith or gone after worldly things. It does not mean that when you do what the Lord commands that there will be no fruit in your faithfulness, but it might not look like you think. And it doesn't mean that there's no right way or wrong way, but Peter understands that if there's going to be any fruit in the lives of the people that he's writing to, even if he tells them everything they need to hear, and even if he says it in the exact way it needs to be said, It will only be because God showed mercy and kindness in an abundant way and not because of anything that came from him, Peter, directly. When you are well acquainted with just how much the Lord has to do to save you and restore you, you will know that He has to have this exact kind of Mercy, this custom-fitted mercy towards everyone, or else we're just barren land waiting for the rain. Unless the Lord shows up and sends the rain, we got nothing. I can preach all the best sermons you want. We could have all the right programs and make it 100% biblical. And unless He shows up and makes it work, we're just spinning our wheels. No right-way complex. Lastly, when we know we are sinners, redeemed and restored by the immortal grace of God, number six, we rejoice in dependency. We rejoice in our dependency. Peter prayed, this is a prayer wish, verse 2. He's not directly addressing the Lord, but the way it's structured, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It's a prayer wish what they call it. He knew he depended on the Lord for everything. Being a sinner, divinely restored from abject failure, gives us the framework to rejoice in being utterly dependent on the Lord for everything. But in our flesh, we do not like being unequivocally dependent on the Lord. Who really enjoys being vulnerable, weak, and needy? But there is real lasting joy to be found here, brothers and sisters. 
And I would say that all true Christian joy will be a far away, impossible to reach mountain peak on the horizon for you until you become delighted that you are dependent on the Lord for everything. To quote a song that was popular as I was growing up, I am thankful that I am incapable of doing any good on my own. Resisting being delighted in our dependence will not only rob you of joy, it will destroy your usefulness to the Lord. If you neglect or forget to consider your dependence on Him. There's three ways that we do this as we close here. And they all orbit around our unwillingness to remember or rejoice in the fact that we are redeemed and restored sinners for God's service out of unmitigated failure. The first trap where we refuse to rejoice in our dependency on the Lord is pride. Theological pride or pride in position, pride in our knowledge, pride in our skills. And this is a real danger for those who have maybe been in the faith for a long time. Maybe you've read a lot or studied a lot. Part of this pride is also if you begin to think that you're an expert where you're strong and where you're weak. Like if you think that you're well acquainted and you know what your strengths and weaknesses are in a way that someone else can't come and tell you in a way that doesn't agree with your own analysis, you're in trouble. Don't be like the younger Peter. The second trap that causes us not to rejoice in being dependent on the Lord for everything is confidence in our own maturity. If you know what sanctification is and if you know what indwelling sin means, then you know that you ought not have confidence in your maturity. But you ought to hear the way we talk about ourselves sometimes. Graciously, lovingly, and encouragingly, let me tell you the truth. Neither you nor I are impressive. God's not impressed with you. He loves you. He's not impressed with you. And if your spouse really knows you and loves you too, they're not impressed with you either. You and I are not all that wise. You and I are not that mature. And all things considered, you and I are not all that diligent or useful for His purposes. But He wants to use you. And when you know that you're not all that and a bag of potato chips, you can rejoice in being dependent on Him for everything and be glad that it's not from me. It's not my qualifications. It is all Him. The third trap that we need to avoid, the trap that prevents us from delighting in our dependency on the Lord, is confidence in our experiences and how you've lived your life. Or maybe how you've served in the past or what you've learned in the school of life or years. That doesn't help that much really at all. Because all that lurking pride of superiority or misplaced confidence, all of that outweighs any benefit you get from the knowledge you think you gain. 
And it's all the same for me. And this is all good news because the Lord Jesus still desires and plans to use us if we will walk in an awareness of our dependency on Him and our need for His divine restoration. That is essentially a very basic, simple way to explain the Gospel. I've got nothing. Jesus has everything. I embrace these terms. All that I need is in Him. And his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, I got nothing. He has everything. How depressing would it be for us to hear, if you're, if you're at least basically familiar with yourself, that the Lord only desired to use those who were impressive, that he only desired to use those who were wise, that he only wanted to use those who were really diligent and highly experienced and really useful. Thankfully, that's not how he operates. He wants to use people like Peter. And like you and me, who know they got nothing, and all of it comes from Him. He wants to use, He would rather use, redeemed and restored sinners who are repentant and humble and know that everything is from Him, rather than those who are not well acquainted with the gravity and severity of their sins. So, the Lord wills and plans and saves in order to restore and send sinners to do His work. Further, He will only use those who know that this applies to them. That you and I have failed miserably. And that we need nothing but pure grace to be permitted to even do one thing in His service. The exhortation of this sermon is of course to believe and see all these things and have this mindset and to understand what it is in order to be useful, but we can summarize all of it and put it into one central exhortation and appeal. Dear Christian, Find your joy in knowing that Christ has everything and you have nothing. And all there is for you to do is to humble yourself to the truth. Rejoice. The Lord uses and sends sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your abundant mercy. You do not leave us in our failure. You initiate restoration and give us everything we need in order to stand. As we consider the Lord's table today, as we come to a table set before us in the presence of our enemies, I pray that you would help us understand that we are not worthy to come and take of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. You grant us access. Help us understand that the only unworthy manner to come is to deny the truth of what it is and to be proud, thinking that we might, in fact, deserve or merit taking of His body and blood. Help us be like Peter, who just faithfully served after receiving Your restoration, even unto death. May it be so for Your namesake and the glory of Your Son, Jesus. Amen.